Well, thank you, and thank you to the music team. It's been really such a blessing to be here. And it's a blessing to, to meet with you guys and to see Micah and the family and others that were over last year, Kari and the, the bunch. And I'll be sharing a little bit more about that next week and about the work in Yall. Yes, it's actually called Yall. And uh, yes, yeah, so uh, come along and uh, I'll, I'll be sharing about the work then. And it's just so great to be able to partner with you guys and know that even though like, uh, we're, we're so geographically separated that we serve the same God, we have the same Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I wanted to share with you from Luke chapter 15. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and I'll read it to us. <clears throat> now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. No many days later, the son, younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands, but you never gave me yet a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, 
you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Well, chapter 14, the chapter just before this, begins with Jesus eating with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and, and their snobbish and their kind of elitist, condescending behavior towards the, the sinners. It, it becomes the inspiration for Jesus' criticism of them throughout chapter 14. Chapter 15 begins with Jesus enjoying food with the tax collectors and sinners. Verse 1 says that the tax collectors and sinners were gathering round to hear Jesus. And that, it may initially give us the idea that as they were gathering in, Jesus was using the opportunity to just explain to them about how sinful they were and about their wrong behavior and how terribly they need to change. But instead, we, we get a very different interaction. The stories that we read in, in chapter 15 are inspired by Jesus being disgusted by the behavior of chapter 14 by the Pharisees and his welcoming behavior of these sinners and tax collectors in chapter 15. And so Jesus tells stories, these parables, about the alienated, the marginalized, the lost. Chapter 15, there, there are three parables which share this theme, theme of the lost being found. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And Jesus eats with those who are obviously the lost in society. Nothing apparently glorious about them, but from the angelic, from the heavenly perspective, we see that their once being lost and now being found is much more glorious than all of the good living of the Pharisees in the previous chapter and their self-righteousness. At least that's how the angels and the heavenly court sees it. You know, it's funny because in the, in the media and in the self-help books, at least in Ireland, I don't know what it's like here, but it's the wrong way around. Angels are usually associated with incredible success stories, guiding people, leading them to be successful. One website I looked at recently was called angelsforsuccess.com. And the subheading reads, Angels for Success, TM for your passionately profitable business and abundantly rich life. And you scroll down past all these promises and you'll find the explanation of how it all works. Partnering with your angels and divine team will speed up your success. Working with me, you don't just get a coach, you get an entire team. That's why we call it Angels for Success. When I work with you, I call in our angels and divine team and you will begin to get clear answers and the next steps immediately that are perfect for you. Loads of websites like that. And of course, there, there's the famous bestseller. I don't know if you have it here, but certainly in, in Ireland, a little bit like The Secret. I don't know if you've heard of that, but this is by Lorna Byrne, Angels in My Hair. And it's all about success and calling your angels to help you. But the angels in chapter 15 aren't concerned with success stories. They rejoice at redemption stories, the lost being found. So we'll look at the three parables. First of all, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 3 to 7. Now, Jesus' first parable starts off with a relatively small loss, loss proportionally. It's, it's 1%. 1% might seem small. When it comes to a test score, perhaps you might even go home and you say, I got 
And the parent goes, where did that other 1% go? By the way, they, they say that because if you go like 47.5%, it's too difficult to work out what remains. That's why they say, where did that 1% go? So you can test your parents in their math next time. But the different proportions chosen by Jesus are chosen because they fit the story too. It's not just a making a point about statistics or mathematics. If you change the percentages around, they, they wouldn't work. Like if you lost 1% of your coins, not really a big problem. Like his, you think about fluctuations in the markets. If you lost 10% of your sheep, yeah, everybody's going to be out looking for your sheep, the whole countryside. And if you lost 1% of your sons, everybody's going to be then doing their own mathematics about how many sons you had. But what else is striking about these parables is that it is just in the first parable simply a 1%. It's just such a small amount proportionally, statistically, mathematically. As I said, if you lost $1 out of $100, you wouldn't be too concerned unless you've got Scottish descent, you know. <laughs> or if you lost, you know, a, a, another small amount of money, you, you could kind of think it's, it's just a small percentage. As sheep also, I'm told that sheep are incredibly fragile creatures, so uh, shepherds quite commonly, as they go through the lambing season, will expect to lose a few sheep. So we know that these, these things, they can get lost. But even being such a tiny percentage, we think this one sheep, it's not just a percentage, is it? Because it's not just about the money. It's not just about the financial loss. This sheep, you know, we can think sheep, sheep are, they're dumb. Yeah, they're, they're annoying. They, they get stuck in the, the brambles or the briars. They fall onto their backs sometimes and can't get up. They're dumb, we know. But at the end of the day, it's a little living creature, isn't it? Jesus appeals to their sense of compassion for this cute little fluffy creature, which as human beings, we all have some sense of compassion for animals. Jesus says, think about how you have a compassion for one little animal. How much more compassion should we have for one human being? One is still one. This 1% is not a statistic, is it? it's a life. And because it's a life, it is precious. If the sheep dies, then the shepherd might find the body and he, he might get some meat for it. But that's not at all what this is about. He brings it back alive, see if he still has his hundred sheep. He's maybe even calling it by name as he looks for it. Every life is not just a statistic, it's a precious life before God. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you see, they viewed tax collectors and sinners as being outside of the fold. But in the parable, the sheep that's lost, it belongs to the shepherd. It's rightfully his. It's his lost sheep. And he does whatever is necessary to fight and bring it back again because it is precious and it belongs to him. If this is how a good shepherd relates to his sheep and one particular lost sheep, then how would we expect God to relate to one person that is lost? You know, we can't blame a sheep for getting lost. It's a sheep, is it? The shepherd looks at his sheep and he just goes after it with compassion, striving to get it back. And God, the good shepherd, is very much like that. Now, in Ireland, we have like a parish system. I don't know if you have that here. Um, so the, with uh, the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, areas are divided up into almost like religious sections, like a little county, it's a little parish. 
And the priest or the minister then, he's responsible for that area. And everybody might be on the roll. They're involved in the parish. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they might only go maybe once every occasion or maybe only at Christmas and Easter time. But everybody in that area is either a sheep or a lost sheep and their responsibility of that pastoral care team. Now, as Baptists and in y'all, we don't, we don't have a parish system because Jesus' kingdom is not like that. We don't baptize infants. But even as we think of that, it's no harm to consider our own areas, whether it's Yall or Denton or the widest Dallas area, as a little bit like this parish system, this, this area that we're somewhat responsible for. And seeing people who are out there as lost, as, as lost sheep that need to come in to be found by Jesus and experience his love and compassion and forgiveness and acceptance, to come into the safe place of his fold. You see, Jesus challenges the pharisaical, divisive, and condemnatory them and us mentality because he says that all people, no matter how far gone they appear to be, all people belong to God. And it should be our desire to see people who are lost be found by him. So before I move on to the next parable, can I ask you, how do you look at non-believers? Do you weigh them up and, and judge them? Particularly one or two that might come to mind that seem more contemptible or vile or, or really bad. Just Do you see them as being beyond care, beyond hope, beyond redemption? Or do you see them as being a lost sheep that potentially could be found by God and brought into this safe place of his forgiveness and love and acceptance? You see, we need to have compassion just like the good shepherd has compassion. Because seeing people as statistics isn't enough. We need to be concerned with even the smallest proportion, even just that 1%, one individual who needs to know the good shepherd and be rescued. The heavenly perspective, verse 7, is to be concerned with individuals, to care most about rescuing the lost, bringing them to this good and open pasture, leading people to Jesus where they can find forgiveness and redemption. So we have the parable of the lost sheep. We're going to look at then the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 to 10. Now in September, Kate and I will be married 11 years, and I always like to get really significant wedding anniversary presents. You know, presents according to the, the wedding tradition, you know, one year, I think it's paper and, two, on and so forth. Like at five years, it was wood. So I thought, I'll get some significant. I got her a gift of wood. I got her a tree stump. Some good, you know, big. And it's been in the, the garage ever since. It's kind of hard to move, to be honest. But for our wedding day celebration, uh, at least 14 years early, Kate's parents gave us a very significant gift of four gold coins to help towards the cost of the wedding. That was their contribution. And it also was a kind of investment. Um, Kate's dad is, is into that. And anyway, they're, they're, they're roughly around 5,000 euros and maybe about $5,000 altogether. Uh, gold normally doesn't change too much in value. And I'm told that when the, the currency goes down, gold can go up. So it's a good thing to hold on to in the event of a zombie apocalypse. But how exactly we invest those coins and when we decide to cash them in, it really relates to questions of stewardship in Christ's kingdom and about our use of resources for Jesus, which is a subject for the next chapter. But about these coins, we can all agree 
that whether they're in a safe deposit box or sold in the money given to the poor or whatever else kind of use they might have, we can all agree, perhaps, that the worst stewardship would be to lose them. So, while I decided what would be the best use for these coins, I thought the wisest thing to do would be to hide them somewhere so safe and so secure that if anybody broke into the house, they'd never be able to find them. Uh, but could I find them again? <laughs> no, I couldn't. I had just mislaid four gold coins. Uh, and that was when we lived in a, in a neighboring town called Middleton. Before we moved to Yall, it was about 20 miles away. And they were hidden somewhere in that house, uh, somewhere between the, these two areas. And I, I could draw you maybe a, a kind of a map and give you coordinates if you're ever over with a metal detector. But these coins were lost. And, you know, if we were to think even about the parable of the talents, I'm even worse than the fool who hid his talent in the ground because I couldn't even remember where it was. But then again, the unfortunate reality of life is that we've all lost possessions and money, haven't we? Usually when we find out that we've lost them, it's even too late to go looking. We ourselves probably spent a whole day looking for these coins when we moved house and we were always keeping an eye out for them. I told Kate to watch out for anything that might look like those chocolate coins covered in foil. But we eventually had to get to the point where we thought, they're gone. I'll not find it again. Then one day, a few years later, when we got to Yall, I put on a jacket, and out of the pocket fell this little packet, and it was the four gold coins. Now, you could say that I was relieved. That's quite an understatement. We definitely praised God and rejoiced. But whatever we use these coins for now, we can be sure that it will be way more purposeful than whatever it was going to be used for before. Because they were lost, and they were found years later. And that has made them even more precious. You'd be pleased to know that I have them somewhere safe now. <laughs> now, this woman had 10 silver coins, not just quite as expensive, but for her, perhaps it was uh, very valuable to her. Uh, and also, the, the, uh, some believe that the, the necklace of 10 silver coins was given as a dowry, or it might have been passed down from the previous generation. But still, it's a lot of money. It's possibly worth, each coin is worth maybe $100. So she's lost one, and she's extremely concerned about it. And it's not just the financial value, but also the, the, the value of, of what it might mean to her as an heirloom and all of these things. And she was determined she had to find them. What she loses is, is maybe even part of her, her nest egg or part of her, her status as a woman or even related to her, her um, whole... Uh, relationship in our marriage. But you know, Jesus makes a point that we can lose money. And it's not because we're incredibly materialistic or that you made some really risky investment in the stock market. You can lose money or you can lose a coin or valuables, which at the end of the day won't make any difference to whether we live or die most of the time. But when we lose it, we're sad. And when we find it, we're happy. We rejoice because it's a normal human reaction. It's what humans do, isn't it? And you know, we might think it's strange to use this as a parable or to talk about these kind of things in church, maybe a little bit materialistic, but that's kind of the point. It's all very human, earthly, unspiritual. It's the kind of things that concern us as human beings. But you know what the angels get excited over? Jesus says, 
It's not over coins. It's not over silver or gold. No. They rejoice over lost human beings who get found again by the grace of God. In the parable of the lost sheep, we've already seen that God strives and searches for that extra 1% because every single sheep, every single coin is valuable, not because it's just one out of 10 or one out of 100 or whatever kind of proportion or statistic of the monetary value, but because one is one person, one lost person, one lost soul. And as Lucas even recorded a couple of chapters beforehand in Luke 9 verse 25, Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul? You know, I might get annoyed about coins, we might get annoyed about sheep or other things that we lose. But you know, even if we gained the whole world, it wouldn't even have the combined value of a single individual human soul. In the final parable, Jesus doesn't use sheep or coins. He uses people to represent people because there's more that needs to be said. He gets them a little bit more direct because sheep and coins and the vegetables of vegetables can only go so far at representing human experience, can they? With the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, finally the parable of the lost son. A few years ago, when James was in Kate's tummy and, and Chloe was two, we went to China, uh, just to Hong Kong. We were doing many trips from Hong Kong into China. And uh, a lady, a girl from the church in Yall, where we're from, said to us, Filipino girl, she said, uh, now be careful, don't lose Chloe in Hong Kong. Haha, <laughs> very funny, Crystal. What kind of parents do you think we are? Well, you know what's coming, don't you? We did lose Chloe in Hong Kong a few times, but one time particularly was more scary. We were at the swimming pool, we were getting changed, and it was a huge pool, big area. And also there's the danger of the water too, and Kate can't find Chloe. And uh, she's checking in the cubicles and going from door to door. And eventually, um, she finds her. But, you know, you can imagine the possibilities. It's only for a few minutes, but it seems like hours. And all the scenarios are playing through your head. Kate finds Chloe, and there she is, looking out from under the cubicle door, giggling hysterically. But, of course, to us, it wasn't funny at all. Now, other than that, we tried to keep Chloe in the buggy because uh, she's a bad egg. Um, take no chances. She's also got this unique, special hair that's black and blonde with a birthmark, so it was quite a, a photo opportunity for a lot of Chinese to take photos with Chloe. And I kind of had this impression, rightly or wrongly, that if we lost her, she could be gone forever. And my best Liam Neeson impressions in the world would do nothing to get her back. You know, lost coins might be a little bit upsetting. If you're a shepherd and you've named all your sheep, lost sheep, yep, that's upsetting to you. But you know, losing a child, losing your own child, that's a different story, isn't it? The longer it goes on, the more distressing it becomes. The time increases and hope is replaced by despair. I don't know if many of you have heard of the story of Madeleine McCann. She was a little girl over in England, the parents went on holiday and they lost her. And whatever exactly the details of the story was, they came to a point where they had to realize she's gone. Unlike a lost coin, a lost child doesn't turn up under the bed 
a few weeks later, and in 16, or in, in May time, I think was the 16 year anniversary. If she turned up now, it would be like receiving a child back from the dead, which is exactly the point in this last parable. In the last parable, Jesus tells the story of a man with two sons. With each parable, the proportions have changed quite deliberately so that now in the final parable, it's down to 50-50. It brings your prejudices down to something that's so personal, it can't in any way be considered as a statistic. You can ignore 1 in 100 or 1 in 10, but here it's just me and him, or you and her, or you and you. It's personal. It's familial. It's intimate. There are only three characters in the story aside from the servants. It's the, the father and the two sons, and they're all related. But what makes it even more personal is the very real personal experiences and interactions that are described here as the characters go through the story, clearly representing the sinners and the Pharisees at the beginning of the chapter. Let's just review the story. Verse 11 to 24 tells the human experience of the lost being found. Verse 11, Jesus continues, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Now today, it might not seem that strange to ask for something of the inheritance, if there is any inheritance. Statistically, parents are way more likely to help out a child either get their first car or maybe a deposit in a first home if they can afford that. It can be very difficult to buy otherwise. I know it's the case in Ireland anyway. But in the culture of the first century, it would have been very disrespectful. If the father wasn't insulted by the request, he certainly would have been extremely upset to see how the son spent the money. In some ways, it might even be like saying to the father, Father, I want my inheritance. Now, I kind of even wish that you were gone because I want your money. There's absolutely nothing that is good about this son's request. He didn't spend it in a business startup or a new car, or anything like that. Now, presumably, the older son, then as the father divides it up, he got the, he got the, the farm or the, the assets. The son maybe got the cash savings. Uh, the, the word here that's translated as the estate is, is bios. It just means his, his whole worth, his life's worth. And whatever way it was divided up, what did happen is that anything that was left now was the property of the older son which is important as we think about the final few verses in the story. So the younger son gets a share. He goes out somewhere far out of reach of the father's expectations and influence, and he lives his own independent life. He lets go. He enjoys himself. He wastes all his father's money. And in the end, as the combined result of his own ridiculous choices and a famine that he never saw coming, he finds himself destitute. And as a Jew... He resorts to the lowest of the low and takes work hiring himself out as a servant or even as kind of a slave, feeding pigs in a field, an unclean animal. And even he says that he would have eaten the, the pig's food because verse 16, no one gave him anything. He was absolutely destitute, which is probably the point that he maybe even needed to come to for him to finally come to his senses in the next verse. It's maybe not that he clearly repents here and cries out totally for forgiveness. No, yes, it's part of his journey. The turning point even is this first crucial realization when he 
compares the, the, the love and care and the provision of his good father, which he had shown utter contempt for, with his lifestyle and his present circumstances and the company he finds himself in, which is just leading him to complete destruction. He has this light bulb moment and he realizes that his life is a mess. He's a disaster. And if he doesn't seek the help of his father sooner or later, he's going to die. He's utterly lost and he knows it. And he comes to his senses and recognizes that his life his whole life, everything about him has to turn around. There's a boy band in Ireland some years ago. Some of you might have heard of them, Boy's Own. And there's a guy, Shane Lynch, and he tells the story in his testimony about coming to the deepest points of addiction and occultism, a life of disaster. And he was woken up by the words of a guy he knows who's a born-again Christian singer, singing the words, listen to what I say. You've got to turn around. And it was just that little realization. I need to change. I need to be changed. My life is heading for destruction. I need forgiveness and salvation. Or perhaps you're, you're more familiar with Johnny Cash or other people that reach such a low point in their life that in that they find the grace and forgiveness and acceptance of God as they realize they need to turn around. It begins with coming to your senses. And like the younger son in the story, it becomes a cry then for forgiveness. And forget about redemption and blessing and kind of abundant life or anything like that. It's, it's not even the mindset. The lost soul just wants to be found, to just even become a servant, he says. To be rid of my disaster of a life and just have any kind of a second chance. Just a servant. That's all I deserve. But the father runs to him throws his arms around him, kisses him, honors him with rings and robes and throws a great big party to celebrate. For the father, this was like receiving his son back from the dead. The parable ends briefly with these final eight verses given to the conversation between the father and the older son. And the very human reaction, his very human reaction to the younger brother's experience of being lost and then being found. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to the characters, God is the generous father who loves people and rejoices to see them repent and be found by him. And each one of us is represented by either the older or the younger sons, or perhaps both. Maybe you were represented by the younger son some years ago, but now you best fit the character of the older son. The younger son understands that he deserves nothing. It's by his father's generous grace and blessing that he is where he is. He really should be dead. The older son, when he sees his father's generosity, is disgusted, verse 25. He's out in the field and he's working away when he first hears the music and then he hears the news from one of the servants. It's, it's not like even anyone rushed out to tell him. No doubt he feels sidelined. And even he maybe feels that he's being punished for his obedience and hard work. What good has it done him? So when the father comes out to reason with him and plead with him, he accuses the father of favoritism, of ignoring the, the great shame and dishonor that the younger son has brought on him, and also ignoring all these years of hard work that he has contributed 
as the older, responsible son that he spent slaving away for the father. He thinks, well, my younger brother might be born again to his new life, but I refuse to accept him truly as my brother because he doesn't deserve it. Why should I share my inheritance with him? In ways, we can't help but sympathize with the older son. In his position, I might feel the same. It does seem unfair. But in the end, it's not a question of what we deserve, is it? It's all about grace and forgiveness. And at the end of the day, God the Father and his servants, the angels in heaven, are more concerned with finding the lost than they are with hard work and dedication and a good life. So which brother are you? Perhaps you identify as the younger brother. Perhaps you see yourself as someone completely undeserving of forgiveness and grace. And you can look back vividly in some point in your life where you saw your need and you reached up to God and you asked for forgiveness and new life, knowing that Jesus bled and died for you. Maybe that's your clear experience and understanding this morning. Or maybe you're like the older brother. You look at people around you, maybe people in church, people in the street, and you say to yourself, if they came to church, if that person that I know came to church and started telling everyone that they had been born again, I think I'd want to go somewhere else. I couldn't be identified with that person because of what they've done and what people look at them and think. Do you find that kind of grace and forgiveness repulsive, unfair? Because I know I do at times. There's a little bit of the older brother in all of us. We'll think of some person or some people in our opinion who are just too lost to be found, just beyond hope. But what about that heavenly perspective? Verse 1, or sorry, verse 7, verse 10, verse 31. Rejoicing in heaven over that lost person who was found. It's about grace. It's about forgiveness. It's about the lost being found. Because that is what is important. And that is what is worth celebrating. So let's pray that in the days ahead, in Yall, in Denton, wherever we might be, that we will continue to reach out in love and compassion to those around us and seek them to be brought in by God's grace and his love into the fold so that we, like the angels and the court in heaven, might rejoice at the lost being found and finding new life and forgiveness and peace in Jesus. I'll close in prayer before the team comes up. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the father in the story that stands and watches and that even runs out to us and throws arms around us, knowing how sinful we are and how broken we are, but lavishes us in your grace and mercy and forgiveness in new life. And Father, we pray that you will help us as we look at those around us, as we reach out, as we share the gospel, as we see the church grow, Father, to be those who are welcoming and to, those who are lo- to be those who are loving, and that those who always remember that in our own lives are like the younger brother who found that forgiveness and grace and new life, that we are those who were lost, that have now been found in Jesus. And in his precious name we pray. 
Amen. Amen.